So we're in a series uh, uh, we're calling The Crux of the Matter, looking at the most important thing. And in this case, uh, it's the most important thing as it's applied to how do we have conversations around difficult topics, topics about which we are invest very invested, but topics about which there are maybe some deep and profound disagreements. How do you discuss those things in loving ways? It's a topic that is obviously very timely for us right now. Because we are living in an environment, we here in America, listeners, you can apply it to your own land, but, but in America here, it, it is toxic, like, I think in a, we haven't seen since the Civil War. Uh, it, it, it's tangible, it's palpable. Uh, sides are just look at each other as enemies. Um, there's just no goodwill going on here. And I don't think it's going to get better. I, I, at least, I, I suspect it's going to get worse before it gets better. I'm not like a political scientist or anything, but if you were thinking that Mueller report is going to like settle this, I suspect you're going to be mistaken. Uh, I feel like we're, it, all it is is we're in a poker game, or if somebody's in a poker game here and all of a sudden somebody pushed in a whole lot of chips. The ante just got up. We're, 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 it's, it's more high stakes. One thing I can almost guarantee you that you will not hear as this Mueller report comes out, or at least you'll hear very little, is, is, is this. My gosh, you were right about that. It's not what's going to happen. Everyone's got their own grid, and they interpret things through their own grid. And, and so everything becomes just evidence for their own rightness. In this kind of a climate, what's so crucial is, A, that we don't get sucked into that, that we know how to avoid getting sucked into those polarities. And, 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 and B, that we can model what it looks like to have conversations about difficult topics, but in a loving way, in a calm way, because the Bible tells us we're supposed to do everything in love. Um, and to be able to model that, what, what is... The worse that a culture gets in any particular area, the more it presents an opportunity for the kingdom to shine. And this is a chance for the kingdom to shine. Can we be a people who can talk about anything, however, however difficult, however challenging, but do it in, in, in loving ways? So what I want to do this morning, I, I'm entitling this message, Bad Elephant. Sounds like a good name for a rock band. They already have Cage the Elephant, but this is Bad Elephant. They have Bad Flower, Bad Wolves. We need a Bad Elephant. So this is Bad Elephant. And there's two things I'm going to do here, right? Um, First thing is I'm going to solve a theological and science problem. Uh, this part of the message would fit better with that science and faith thing, and I'm sorry, I just can't let that go. But there's a part, I, there's a, a real important question that I've been asked a lot, and I was hoping to get to it in that, that series, and I never did. And so I want to get to it in this series, and this is, looks like a good time to plug it in. So the first half of this will be a, a, about a theology of why we are so conflicted. And I'm going to pick up where I left off two weeks ago, talking about the elephants and things like that. So I'm going to try to solve a theological science problem, and then we'll turn and I'm going to apply uh, some principles to how we can actually manage difficult uh, conversations. Uh, I have four of them. Whether we get to all four today or not uh, will be determined. Probably not, but maybe we'll get to one. So we'll see. Here's how it'll go. The Spirit blows where it listeth, right? I, I want to start by reading Romans 7. Paul says this. Verse 9 and 20. He says, For I do not do the good that I want, and the evil I, I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I that do it. But sin that dwells within me. Now there is a lot of literary discussions around what, what exactly Paul's getting at here. Is he speaking, you know, autobiographical, or is he talking about kind of personification of an ideal human, or whatever? And we don't need to get into that. The thing I want us to get at, however, however you apply this, whether it's Paul, or he's talking generally, is is that he's aware that to be in this, where the human condition is one of being conflicted. We're conflicted. Uh, we, we, the good that we want to do, we often can't do it. And the bad that we want to avoid, we often end up doing that. Can somebody say amen? It happens. It, we're, we're, we're conflicted people. You, you really 
You, you vowed that the next time you go to Aunt Hildebrand's house for Thanksgiving or birthday or Christmas, that you're not going to let them get to you. Oh, you came out of the same church that they were a part of, and that's a pretty rigid, you know, thinking kind of church. And every time you get together, you get attacked and barraged and questioned about things, and, and you end up losing your cool and you have a meltdown. But this time, you're not going to go there. You're going to model the beauty of the kingdom and the patience of the kingdom and the love of the kingdom and the joy of the kingdom by being able to discuss these tough, these tough conversations, have these tough conversations without melting down. And they start by wondering about why you don't hold to the rapture anymore or why don't you believe in plenum substitution. And then they go back to the fact that you don't think that God controls everything. And, and then they call you a liberal because you believe in feeding people and housing people and, 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 and care about the environment and peace and all those kind of liberal things. And so they're very concerned about you. So they barrage you. And for the first five, ten minutes, you're fine. But then pop goes the weasel. And you lose it. And it's always like this. And you say things you wish you didn't say. And you're not modeling anything beautiful about the kingdom. Why is it the good that you wanted to do, you couldn't do? You had every good intention, and the evil that you wanted to avoid, that's what you ended up doing. It's like then so many things, we can all relate to this. I, yeah, I, I, I'm for sure quitting smoking. It just doesn't seem to ever happen, and I'm going to get off these drugs, but not today. Uh, and, and next time, I'm going to wait. This is it. I'm, from now on, I'm waiting until I get married, but it just never seems to happen like that. You, I'm going to keep God more in my thoughts. I'm going to become more God-aware, and that works for a day or two, but then it slowly fades away. The good that you want to do, you can't do. And all the bad stuff you want to avoid, that's what you often end up doing. Paul says it's a sin in me. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a very odd concept for us. The sin in me, that's what's doing it. Now, Paul's not saying, therefore, I'm off the hook. He's not, oh, the devil made me do it. I couldn't help it. It wasn't me that sinned. It was a sin in me. Try that on your spouse. See how it works. It's not going to, honey, it was a sin in me. No. But see, Paul uses sin in two different ways. It's important for us to see this distinction. Uh, one way is that as a verb, uh, we sin, and sin means missing the mark. So we miss the mark in what we do, and our behavior and our thoughts. And so we—that's th the kind of sin that we're re responsible for, because we could do otherwise. Uh, you're only responsible for what you could do otherwise. And, and sin is when we know that we should do this, but we do it, or we should do this, but we don't. But Paul uses sin in a different sense as well. It's a—it's not a personal sin. It's more of a cosmic kind of a thing. It's like a force. Some refer to it as almost a demonic entity. In fact, some scholars argue that Paul, when he refers to sin with a capital S, it's almost sin as a separate entity, he's actually referring to some kind of a dimension of a demonic power. And there's this power that's at work in this world. And it has this downward pull. And, and so all of our best aspirations, not all of them, but many of them come to nothing because there's this thing called sin. It's a structural kind of sin. Now, we're not guilty of this. But we are affected by this. This is sort of the brokenness of the world. The downside of the brokenness of the world, the downside of our own brokenness. And it doesn't excuse us, because we could always do otherwise. But it does explain us as to why we are never quite as good as we know we, we, should, we should be. So you ask, what does this have to do with science? I'm glad you asked, because I have to think this Sarah with you about that. So uh, uh, two weeks ago, I shared about this from this book, uh, The Righteous Mind by John Haidt. And... and uh, it's just a fascinating book. If you're into science, you might want to check this out. But he's giving an evolutionary explanation uh, for, for why there are these polarized, for why humans tend to be so polarized and why, why coming to peace is, is, seems, seems to be so difficult. And I'm just going to review some of this and then to, move a little bit beyond where I was two weeks ago. So he says we, we can liken the, the brain to an elephant. And this elephant's been evolving for millions and millions of years, hundreds of millions of years. Um, and this elephant operates on the basis of feelings, not thoughts. Thoughts come much later. 
But uh, this, the, the brain, the, 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 the evolution of the brain, whether you're talking about the simplest kind of brain or the most complex, which is on earth humans, uh, it, it's designed to do this one thing, and that is to notice things in the environment that are a benefit to it, and, and then it secretes a chemical that gives you a, a pleasure feeling. You want to move towards that. You want the benefit. And then when there's something that threatens you or is going to harm you in any way, then, then it secretes a chemical or parts of the brain that, that cause you to uh, want to fight it or f run from it. Your amygdala gets activated. That's what the brain does. And so this brain, our brains got very sophisticated at doing this. And being aware of, of things that are advantage or disadvantage in our environment. And uh, it's been going on for thousands of years. But it's all based on feelings, pleasure and, and, and pain. Pleasure or fight or flight. Uh, reason is a relatively latecomer. Uh, the higher parts of the brain functioning, they estimate, if you hold evolutionary theory, and I think there's something to it, but that's a recent comer. It's only in the last 50 to 100,000 years that this is, uh, the higher brain functions have been there. And you can think of reason as the rider on the elephant. Now, we tend to think that the rider's job is to steer the elephant, that reason is to steer the elephant. We, we tend to think of ourselves as very rational people. I do this because it's a reasonable thing to do, and this is a rational thing to do, and it seems logical to do this, and now I'll do this logical thing. That's what, that's what it feels like we're doing. Uh, but actually, there's just a ton of now indisputable neurological evidence that that is not usually the case. We think we're very rational, but in fact, what usually happens is that this elephant decides what it's going to do. And, and, and reason then just helps it, helps it do what it wants to do. From an evolutionary perspective, reason was evolved not to steer the elephant. The elephant didn't need steering. It got along very well for millions and millions of years just on the basis of feeling. Reason comes along to, get, to give it an advantage. And the advantage is uh, reason can get a flashlight and look ahead and see what obstacles this elephant might confront uh, and, and trying to get what it wants. And so it will figure out how to get around the obstacles in order to, for the elephant to get what it wants. There's a second job that it has, and that is to justify the elephant getting what it wants. And, and in this sense, our reasoning is evolved sort of as our PR department, a, 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 a state of evolution when it was a real advantage to us to be able to read each other's motives so we could hunt as teams. We began to ask the question, why? Like, why would you do that? And now we have to give an account for why we would do this. Now, so far, the elephant's always been doing what it wants just because it wants to. It feels like it's the right thing to do. But now we have to come up with reasons. And so the reasoning tends to come after the fact, after the decision is made. And they've done this with, with, with uh, hypnotized folks where they will, will tell them on a certain cue of a word, say the word red, you're, you're going to uh, untie and then tie your shoe again. And, and so when the person comes out of hypnosis, they say the word red, and the person then, on cue, tie, unties and ties their shoe again. And then they ask, why did you do that? And the person will come up with a reason. But they didn't do it for that reason. It's just that they, they, they don't, the, the, the reasoning assumes they must have done it for some reason or other. And so here's a plausible reason as to why my elephant might have done this. And so in this view, most of our thinking, in fact, for some people, all of their thinking is simply a rationalization. Uh, it, it's, it, here, here are the excuses for why we were going to do what we wanted to do anyways. It comes after the fact. And this, folks, is what gets us in trouble because this is why, whatever, whatever conclusions you've come to, every step of the way, your reason's been justifying it. You take a step this way. For whatever reasons, there's something, a profound need, you're getting mad or whatever, but, but you go in this direction, so your reason says, that's right, oh, good job. Oh, that was smart. Very good. Oh, brilliant. Okay, yeah, we can do that. Okay, nice job. You sh very good. You should have done that. All the while, you, get pat, you pat yourself on the back. This is what we do. So the narrative we live in is a me, me, me narrative, and it's a I'm right, I'm right, I'm right narrative. So wherever you end up, guess what? 
it feels really right. And then when you talk to somebody who's got a narrative that went in a very different direction, and they've got a very different sort of reasoning and very different sort of you know, values or whatever, when you hear them talk, if you're debating about an issue, it may sound to you very much like they're, they're just stubbornly holding to their positions because they want to, and they're just coming up with stupid reasons to justify it. And you'd probably be right about that. Uh, th that's probably what they were doing, and that's exactly how your ra reasons sound to them. And they're largely right. And this is what makes di dialoguing about this stuff very, very hard. Not only that, but our elephant, because it's used to getting what it wants, it wants what it wants. Uh, anything that gets in the way of it getting what it wants, it gets mad at. And that's where the fight or flight thing comes in. Uh, and there's very little things, very few things that our elephant wants more than to be right. It's wired for rightness. It loves to be right. And so if you suggest that you're not right about something that is important to that elephant, well, that elephant is going to get very, very mad. And now the prefrontal lobe cortex shuts down and there won't be any kind of reasoning taking place. This is what makes this so challenging. Now, the one piece of good news here is that, as I shared two weeks ago, reason can actually, and science can't totally explain this, but we're able to ask a third question. Not only, not only like figure out how to get the elephant what it wants or, or to justify the elephant getting what it wants, but we can call into question question number two by asking, should the elephant get what it wants? Reason is able to turn that flashlight, which usually just looks obediently ahead. Whatever direction the elephant turns, that's where our flashlight is. But we, are, we have this mysterious power to turn that thing back on ourselves and ask, should we do this? And it's really quite a miraculous thing. Uh, it's hard to explain on a strictly natural basis uh, that we're able to introspect. We're able to ask, is the map the territory? We're able to step out of ourselves, to step out of our own wants and to ask, is this true? And thank God for that, because if all we could do is rationalize, then we could never know truth. All we could know is our own rationalizations. So we have this ability. It's, it's proven neurologically that we can do this. In fact, some have argued on this basis, uh, we're actually, actually able to change the neurological structure of our brain just by turning our attention on it. And uh, a guy named Jeffrey Schwartz, he, he wrote a book called The Mind and the Brain, where he, where he used this as an argument that, that humans have a transcendent soul. It's a really interesting book. But we're able to do this. The thing is, we have the capacity to do this, but we hardly ever use it. And we hardly ever use it because it's hard. It's really hard. For one thing, we are, the, we riders here, we are part of our elephant. Okay, we're attached to our elephant. And when it's gratified, we're gratified. We like giving the elephant what it wants because that part of us gets what we want. Um, it's just that sometimes there's things that are more important than what we want. And, and we're able to choose those if we want to, but we don't usually want to. And to go against that elephant, you're going against millions of years of evolution. That elephant is used to being its own boss. It's only had a boss for the last 50,000 years or so. And, and it doesn't like it very much. It wants to do what it wants to do. It's hard to turn that elephant. We can turn it a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. And over a long time, that's, that's a lot of free will. That's a lot of influence. But it's not easy. It means that you have to deny yourself. Say no to what the elephant wants. And you can only do that if, 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 if reason wants something more than it wants to gratify the elephant. There's got to be a greater goal, a greater purpose, something that loves more, desires more than even its own gratification. And this, folks, is, I think, the expo scientific explanation for Romans 7. Um, we, we, we have this reason. We have this spark of the divine. We're able to want the good, to desire the good. And we can, and if we're really intentional, we can, we can achieve the good, but we, we, we just find that we usually aren't able to on our own power. Uh, the elephant gets what it wants. 
And, and Paul says it's the sin, it's the brokenness in me, it's this, the structural defect in creation that is inclining me towards this. And see, what we have to accept here, folks, is that our elephant, uh, whether you accept the evolutionary theory or not, you have to deal with the reality that you've got a bad elephant. Uh, this elephant, however it came about, this elephant, it's good when it comes to survival and it's trying to serve you. It's trying to serve you. And it does very good on survival stuff, on protection stuff, on defensive stuff. It, sometimes it's too good at that. But when you put this elephant next to the word of God, you can see this is a fallen, corrupted elephant. Um, it, it, for one thing, it's, it's incurably self-centered. That elephant, from the time it was a cockroach, it's been saying, me, 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 me. All it cares about is me. What's good for me, what's a threat to me. That's, that's how that brain is structured, fundamentally. And to that degree, it's contrary to the ideal of God. And then, let's be honest, that elephant, that, that brain of ours, that Reptilian brainstem, all that animal stuff in us, it's got some jaded stuff going on. If you were to crack open every, I can't say everyone, I don't know everyone, maybe there's one or two saints in the crowd, or at least with our proud parishioners, who knows, but most people, you crack open their skull, look on the inside, and you're going to see some naughtiness. People are more jaded on the inside than they ever let on. And it's not just sexual stuff either, though we're pretty jaded on that. But it's stuff that goes through our brain. Impulses, urges, stuff that is, if we were honest with it, it's pretty ungodly, it's pretty yucky. And now we're, we're told that there's, I mean, godliness doesn't come natural to a lot of us. Maybe some of you are just as, as normal as can be. But for, for the rest of us folks, it's like you have to choose it. Like monogamy, you have to choose that. And there's all these impulses drawing you otherwise. And like, why do I have to have this to put up with? Why do we have to wrestle this way? Crying out loud. And then we're finding out through genetic research that for much, if not most, some would say all of our activity, there are, uh, there are genetic, there's a genetic basis for it that at least inclines you in a certain direction. Even towards stuff that's not very good, stuff that's not good at all. Uh, they've, they've isolated a genetic propensity, a genetic basis for kleptomania, for lying, cheating, stealing, violence, murder, uh, pedophilia. All, there's all, all these different, down to little tiny things like preference for colors and stuff, there's a genetic basis for it. Now, it doesn't mean that you're determined to go in that direction. Uh, they used to think that genes were like little alarm clocks that are going to go off at a certain time regardless of, of where you're located or regardless of whatever decisions you've made. But we now know that, that there's, um, through epigenetics, there's a kind of flexibility there where genes are, are prope- potentials or propensities that get activated or not depending on what goes on in your environment and depending on the choices you make. So it's, it's not like you're predestined to do any of these things, but there is a fallen inclination towards it. And we've got to ask the question, why is that? How, how, how is this possible? And on top of that, your elephant is a judger, a massive judger. To the core of its being, that's all it does is judge. Now it starts by judging what, what, what was positive or negative for me. But as that evolves, it gets a little more sophisticated. It, it, it starts by making distinctions so that you can feed, get food. But in time, those distinctions become our food. We feed off the contrast. We feed off the judgments. What's good for me is that I know that I'm better than that person. I may not be the best person in the world, but I'm better than that person, that person, that person. In fact, I'm better than almost everybody. That's how come I can judge everybody. You couldn't judge everybody unless you're superior to them, which is why we do it. Why? Because we love the feeling of rightness. We're wired to feel rightness. And this, this, this elephant of ours just gets off on being right. And that's what causes all this conflict, because it does not like to be told it is wrong. And finally, and maybe the most carnal aspect of this elephant is that it actually thinks, it assumes it can define reality based on its desires, on its wants. Um, think about it. Unless you're intentional on doing otherwise, 
your elephant makes a decision, and then reason's job is to justify it. Oh, good job. Here's why you should have done this, I think. And since you went this way, there must be a reason. Here's a good reason to have. And so the reason follows the decision. So to ask, what is, why would the elephant do this is another way of saying, what is true? It, since the elephant is going to go this way, why must he be doing this? Or since the elephant's going to go this way, what must be true? Since I want reality to be this way, here's how reality should be. That, folks, is the very essence of sin. That goes back to the garden, the Genesis 3 narrative, where uh, the enemy deceives Eve into entertaining an alternative reality. So, folks, let's, let's accept this reality. We, we have a, a, a fallen brain, uh, a brain that's inclined towards self-centeredness, a brain that's inclined to, to, to judge, to judge others, uh, a brain that's full of untoward desires and a brain that wants to define reality based on its wants. And that, folks, is the Romans 7 predicament. That's, that's the predicament we, we find ourselves in. And see, so whether you accept that account or not, how we got this way, the fact is that we are this way and we all know it. This world is a war zone. And the Bible depicts it like this. Here's one area where science and, and theology kind of come together. The Bible tells us that we are born into this fallen condition. We're born a lost people, apart from Christ. Our situation is absolutely desperate. Most people don't accept this because life seems pretty good in the Western Hemisphere. But uh, the Bible depiction of humanity is that we are, apart from God, we're depraved, we're lost. We're for, even says we're enemies of God, aliens to God, apart from Christ in our own condition. And, and this is the brokenness of the world. We're born into sin. Not that you're born guilty of anything, but you're born broken. We're all broken. This concept of the sin in me, it does it. It's Paul's concept of a, of a creation that is oppressed by enemy forces and is, is, is broken by the influence of enemy forces. And see, here's the thing. Among the effects this ought to have is if we're aware that we're all broken, if we know anything about the gospel, it is that there is no place in any kind of kingdom thinking for anyone to start having a contest about whose brokenness is more or less than someone else's brokenness. There's no place in the kingdom to, to, to be saying that my brokenness is more acceptable than your brokenness. Or my, my, my brokenness is okay for insiders, but you, you have the deal breaker brokenness. Or my brokenness isn't as ugly as your brokenness. Or my brokenness is more repairable than your brokenness. Or whatever it is, if the gospel means anything, it's that all that, those shenanigans, those comparisons, those judgments, that evaluation, that accuser of nature, all of that's been done away with on Calvary. Hallelujah. And, and we just have to accept that, look, we are just broken people. Hallelujah. The only distinctive claim that we have is that, yeah, we're broken, but we, but we met a fixer. Hallelujah. And we were starving, but we met, we, we found a, a, a feast. Hallelujah. We were sick, but we found a healer. Praise God. We were in sin, but we found a savior. His name is Jesus Christ. And that's our hope. You don't need to be playing any evaluation games when you've got him as your hope, you know, him as your savior. So we're just as broken as anybody else. Welcome to the Broken Club if you're visiting for the first time. But see, this is why Paul says there's no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Because we know God who, is willing, who came and dove into our brokenness and met us exactly where we're at and loved us perfectly exactly where we're at. And that holds true for every person regardless of, of what, what type of brokenness they have. God meets them where they're at, so we meet them where they're at. So we're just the broken club of people who, who know God who loves us as we are and we're being transformed by that love as we let him love us as we are. Amen? So that's the good news. But here's, here's the problem. Here's the problem. How do you reconcile this talk about this nasty elephant with the, 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 the teaching that we're made in the image of God and, and, and that we're good? 
God, God says that we're good. The whole creation is good. How do we reconcile these things? So this is kind of an illustration of the sort of tension you sometimes find in, in theology and, and, uh, and, and science. And, and it's, it comes down to this. Why are we born so messed up for crying out loud? You know, it, it, I used to wonder every day of my life from about the age of 17 to 30, why would God have to give us this much of a sex drive? It's like, you don't need this much. It's overkill. You think that our drives, they have a little more, you know, godliness in them. And, and, and that's just one of the kind of impulses. Why am I like this? A lot of us ask this question. Uh, why is our brain born so messed up? And so I, what I'm giving here is not a doctrine. It's, it's not a dogma. It, it's this is a, my opinion. Uh, this is one way of solving this, this issue. Uh, it's not the teaching of Woodland Hills. and It doesn't have to be yours. Just try it out. But here's the thing. It goes down to this. And I think this is one of the most under, underappreciated facts of, uh, of biblical revelation. And that is that there's just a ton of evidence that nature as we now know it is, is fundamentally flawed. It's corrupted. The nature that we now have isn't nature as God originally intended to be, including our nature. Because our nature is part of this nature. And the whole thing is corrupt. Uh, there's a ton of evidence for it. I mean, for, for example, you find uh, in, in, in the Gospels, it's not just human beings who need salvation. It's the whole creation. The whole creation groans for the manifestation of the sons of God. And, and, and so there's this cosmic dimension to what Jesus did on the, on the cross. And we're included because we're part of the cosmos. But it's, it goes way beyond us. And then on top of that, we find that the New Testament and the early church, up to the first 300, years, they always saw the violence in nature not as a part of God's great design, but as a reflection of enemy corruption in nature. Their idea is that uh, they know that there was an angelic rebellion sometime in the primordial past, and Satan and other principalities and powers took the God-given authority that they had over aspects of creation, and now they're using those at cross-purposes with God. Just like humans do when we, when we abuse our authority, you know, it affects everything under us, but we have the authority to do that, and that's how it happened with them. And they noticed that in the New Testament and throughout the early church, uh, sickness and disease, deformities and death, all of those things are evidence of, of, of demonic corruption. They're always diagnosed as being the, at least the indirect result of, of the enemy influence. And yet, all those things, sickness, disease, deformities, death, famines, disasters, earthquakes, all those things that the early church saw as being, having a demonic origin, those are just natural, given the laws of nature as we now know them. Given the laws of nature as they now operate, these things are inevitable. So if these things have a demonic dimension to them, the laws that led to them must have a demonic dimension to them. And I therefore conclude that the laws of nature as we now have them are not identical to the laws that God originally created. There's been some corruption going on. And so all that's beautiful. When, when you look at the creation, you can still see the glory of God because you can see the majesty of God and the wisdom of God and the, all that's beautiful, all the creativity, that is all of God. But you also look at nature and you see a whole lot of stuff that isn't at all consistent with the character of God. A whole lot of uh, a thief who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And so this world's a war zone. Now, if you, and this is my opinion on this, this is just one way of doing it, and I'm not even 100% convinced this is right myself, but I'm trying it on. I, I, I'm inclined in this way. But if you look at evolution from that perspective, then what you can see is that, or at least one way of interpreting is that God creates. God's always on the creative side of this process. He's, he's always creating it, but the enemy is always corrupting it. So God creates and the enemy corrupts. But then God, in his infinite wisdom, brings good out of evil and advances his program uh, uh, by bringing good out of evil. So the enemy corrupts again, but God brings good out of evil and advances his program. So the enemy corrupts again. And you can see the whole evolutionary process as a kind of a spiritual warfare, a shimming process 
And the whole thing ends up glorifying the wisdom of God because it shows that God's able to arrive at his goal of having image of God bearers. He's able to do that despite the fact that he's had cosmic opposition at every turn. In fact, he's so smart that he arrives at his goal of having image of God bearers precisely by means of the enemy's attacks. He's used their corruption to further his own ends. Just like if you're playing God in chess, every move you make is going to just move forward to your being a checkmated because he knows how to turn it to his advantage because he's anticipated that from the beginning of the game. And so it's a testimony to God's wisdom. And so God finally arrives at human beings and endows us with this unique capacity to have a rider. For the first time in evolutionary history, there's a being who doesn't have to follow the elephant, who can say no to the elephant, who can steer the elephant. And this agent now can be a partner with God, can partner with God to begin to bring about his will on earth as it is in heaven. The decorruption of the earth, first the decorruption of our nature, and then the, the, the decorruption of the earth. And this is God's partner. And this light, folks, the Genesis 3 narrative would not be a narrative so much about a video of what you would have seen 5,000 or 10,000 years ago if you would have been there with a video and a camera or whatever. It's rather a story about each one of us. Now, it could very well be that there was a primordial rebellion, and the story expresses a primordial rebellion sometime in the distant past, but it wouldn't need to, because you could understand the story as being a story about every one of us. Uh, it's, it's a story about how we all were created to be okay walking with God in the cool of the day. I'm talking about the story of Adam and Eve in the garden here. It's a story about how we're all tempted to listen to the deceiver who lies about God and lies about us. It's a story about how we're all tempted to define reality based on our wants. This is exactly what Eve does under the enemy's deception. It's a story about how we all tend to have a temptation to, to get our life from what we can acquire or what we can perform, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil that's out there. And it's a story about how we're all inclined, we're pulled towards uh, the, this tree of judgment, this tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, we're giving into it. It's a perfect symbol for what our elephant wants to do. And just yap about people and gossip about people and judge people to feel good about itself all day long. It's a story of how we first woke up to the fact that we're riding this elephant. And we have some responsibility in how we steer it. However you work it out, the truth is you've got a bad elephant, a fallen elephant, a corrupt elephant. And to, see, to that degree, uh, you're going to just want to feel like you're right and you're going to want to switch the opposition. That's what your elephant's been trained to do. The question is, can we, with our riders, under the Lordship of Christ and the empowering of the Spirit, Choose to do other than that. To go against the millions of years of evolution. To say no to this elephant. Uh, to say, here's where we're going, like it or not. That's the question that's on the table. Okay, so now let me give you one, maybe two. Possibly even three. Uh, uh, kind of some uh, tips and principles by which you can uh, uh, help navigate these things. When you're in tough conversations. See, James says the tongue is, is so important. It, it just steers this whole ship. And in tough conversations, that's where you are going to, that's the most efficient way to flush out, to find out how much control you have over your elephant. Get into a tough conversation with somebody about a topic that's really important to you and about which they have a deep disagreement. Uh, nothing brings out our inner elephant more eloquently than that. Okay, so four principles here. Number one, I'm not even going to apologize for this because this is my broken record. I, this is my message. I come back to this all the time because I think it's the foundation of everything. Get all your life from Christ. You're never going to be able to tame that elephant unless you're getting all your life from Christ. All your worth, your core sense. Your we all need to feel important. We need to feel significant. We need to feel like our life was well. We need to feel like we're not alone. We need to feel secure in that. And, and that's our core identity. That's our life. And we need to be getting that out of our relationship with Christ. Because only Christ can really meet that, that inner need. I say this all the time here. 
But see, to the degree that we're not meeting that need by, by, by just the fact that God loves us, that God thinks about us the way it's revealed on Calvary, if, if, if that's not making us feel good about ourselves and worthwhile and all the rest, then we have to get it from idols. You have to, that need has got to be met. Non-negotiable. It's got to be met. So you will get it from some idol. And the number one idol out there, folks, because it's one we're already doing. It's one, it's so easy. In fact, it's hard not to do it. And that is the idol of rightness. Because we've been walking down this idol of rightness our whole lives. That was a good job. Good job. Oh, you're so smart. Wise move. Good. Oh, you, that, that, you should go that direction. I've been justifying what I want my whole life. So it's, 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 it's hardly, a, it's, it's the easiest thing to fall into, to get life from being right. Look how right we are. And, and, and it's the oldest idol in the book. We're already doing it. And then Christians, if you're having dialogue with other Christians, and probably you are, this, 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 is, what, this is what you're up against. See, Christians then bring in, uh, we already have this, all this momentum going on because of just of the evolution of millions of years, but now bring on eternal salvation. Eternity's at stake in this. Not only did you feel good about being right, but you just up the ante. Now all eternity hangs on you being right. You, you're saved by your rightness, and this is how a lot of folks think. God is this anal theology professor up in the heavenlies, and, and when you die, you're going to go up there and he's going to answer a bunch of questions. And, and, and whether you're saved or not would depend on, do you have the right answers to this? Did you have the right view of the tribulation period? Did you hold to it and answer your penal substitution or whatever? And if you got one wrong, sorry, it doesn't matter what your character is or what you think about me. Bye-bye. You're gone. You're fried. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, so you're saved by your rightness. And see, what's going on is they're just, they feel special before God and secure before God because they believe, they're the people who believe all the right things. We are the right club and the holy club as opposed to that wrong club and sinful club. And, and uh, so it, it's, it's like, I mean, just dealing with the elephant, the rightness of the elephant is already an addiction. But man, when you put you off the poker game to eternity, you just went from Vicodin to heroin, all right? You're just like, Ooh, oh, man, you can get a good draw on that one. Uh, man, eternity, I mean, eternity, you got to secure. But see, if you threaten the source for that junkie, that junkie will rage. And there ain't nothing more ugly than a, ugly, than a junkie elephant. <laughs> your, your elephant, when it gets threatened, something core to it, it rages. And now you're not thinking about anything. And now you're not, you're, you're, you're not talking about the issue. Why? Because the junkie just got agitated. Now you're so mad you want to squish him. Which means you're not thinking about things. Uh, but see, here's where we need to be getting our life from Christ. Um, we need to be telling our elephant all day long that... We, we, where our real source of life is. Take charge of this thing. Uh, you, you, elephant, you think a lot of different things are going to meet your needs, but I'm telling you, there's only one thing that is needful, and that is Jesus Christ. And as I shared two weeks ago, we had to be, that writer, that writer that we've got, you've got more authority than you probably think you do. Actually, you think you have way more authority than you do, but, but, but you do have a little bit of authority, even though I just told you you hardly have any. So forget everything I just said for the last two minutes and, 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 and listen to me now, because I just confused you. So it's like this. You've got some free will here. And, and writer, you need to take that authority. It's a little bit in any given moment, but, but doing a little bit of difference over a long period of time can really make a big difference. And you need to be telling your elephant, your life is found in Jesus Christ. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then we can reprogram those triggers, and this is everything, folks. Conversations, it's all about the triggers. How much control do you have over your triggers? Because if you're talking about a tough topic, you're going to get triggered at some point. There's a little, a little prick. A little, all, you can feel the chemicals. You, you, all of a sudden, he's like... Ugh. And here, you've got, a, you've got a nanosecond here to make a decision. Uh, are you going to give in to that, which would feel so good, just get mad, get raw, let it go, give him a piece of what he wants. Oh, it feels so good. Totally carnal. Or you can say, no, I'm going to get my life from Christ. Because see, it's, a, it, it's the, the idol of our rightness that makes us want to 
bop the person in the head and not listen to them. Uh, we got to let go of that. If you, once you get all your life from Christ, if you stop and get all your life from Christ and realize you know, where your worth comes from, you can let go of that idol of that rightness and it feels so good. Because now the issue can be about the issue instead of about you. It's come together and just and talk about, I don't need to be right. Only if you don't need to be right can you afford the possibility of being wrong, which means only then can you possibly really care about truth. If you're obsessed with being right, you can't be concerned with truth. Only when we make truth a higher goal than our own rightness can we possibly move forward on this. And then, let me also say this. The elephant, and here, here theology and neuroscience come together, because, see, the elephant only speaks the language of concreteness. What I mean, the, the elephant doesn't do any abstract reasoning. doesn't process that information. That's all your rider. Well, it processes information on a subconscious level, but, but it's not a, it doesn't do it rationally. And so that, that, uh, it, 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 that, that's just based on feelings. But that elephant needs Jesus. See, your rider can know all the information about Jesus in the world, and that's great. But that information will not change the elephant. The elephant doesn't care about information. It cares about feelings and experiences. It's never operated without information, only in the last 50,000 years or so. And so getting more information doesn't change the direction of the elephant. This is why, folks, I, I, I just see it so clearly, more clearly than I've ever seen it before. Why? Well, you, you can know so much about what you should be and how you should be acting and how you should be feeling and how you should be and blah, 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 blah. And yet, in reality, there's hardly any of it in your life. Why does the elevator not go all the way from the head down to the heart to change us? We're talking about a rider elephant issue here. So folks, the way to get to the elephant, it only, it, it, it's got to have things concretely, and that's why God gave us an imagination, our inner sanctum. And there needs to be time where you just go before the Lord and ask the Spirit, whose job is to point us to Jesus, to make Jesus real to us, so real to us, so beautiful to us. And to invite Jesus in to love on us and say to us all the things he said to us are about us in Scripture, but now he says it with your name, and he says it looking into your eyes, and he says it with his hug. And see, the concreteness of that creates a feeling. The, the more concrete, the more real like it is, the more the brain identifies it as real. And that, that language the elephant understands. And that begins to change the elephant. You've got to evangelize your elephant, but you can't do it with information. You can evangelize your brain with information, but not your elephant. Man, does this sermon sound weird. You quote me out of context, it'd be utterly intelligible. Today, we learned that we have to evangelize our elephant. Um, but it's true, the elephant's got to hear, hear the good news. The second thing I'll just say very quickly as it closes, just this. Make loving the person the, a higher priority than being right. This is absolutely essential, folks. For us, kingdom people, look at Paul says, whatever you do, do it in love. Let all that you do be done in love. Everything. So this should be the highest goal, not only of our conversations, but, but of everything we do. The number one goal. Whatever else we're trying to do, we, we're trying to manifest love. Uh, Paul says, above all. He just got through saying all the things we should do and attitudes, but then he says, above all, number one, above everything else, most important, is to clothe yourself with love. Um, and so I encourage you to do this. If, you, if you're heading into a conversation that is going to be difficult, this, really, this, this reframe can make all the difference in the world. Yes, you want to be, you're going to try to be convincing them that you're right about something. That's fine. But don't make that your primary goal. That's got to be a, a distant secondary goal. If it happens, it happens. Number one goal is, in this conversation, how loving can I be? How much love can I communicate? How much calmness can I communicate as I'm engaging with this? That's the goal. Make that your goal. And shoot at that. And if, see, if you shoot at that, you may end up being right or may not. 
But at the very least, you're more likely that they'll listen to your reasons than if you were going at this out of, that, uh, out of an elephant amygdala posture. No, do it out of love. Make, make love your aim in all things. And folks, in some conversations, as you know, you can do all you can do. You can do it all just right. You can have your thoughts in line. But um, it takes two to make a conversation godly. <laughs> and the other person melts down, they melt down. And just let, let them melt down. Just, you know, uh, just keep on loving on them as they're melting down or as they're blowing up or as they're raging or whatever. Go ahead and let them just go. But it's not you that's doing it. Just, 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 just love on them. And encourage them to take a break to calm down to get the chemicals out of their system before you continue. But that's not your responsibility. Our responsibility is to be taking every thought captive to Christ, like Paul said. Taming this elephant. Folks, it, 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 there's no magic to this. I wish there was. We have the power of the Spirit, but that's not magic. Uh, it takes practice. Like anything else, it takes practice. If you want to get good at anything, it takes practice. And God calls on us to be world-class disciples. Um, and, and, and so I encourage you to be practicing this in, in, in prayer. Practice. Imagine the times where you get triggered the most. And practice reprogramming your trigger so that when you start to get triggered, you don't say yes to the elephant and get mad. Rather, you ser- let it serve as a reminder. Oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be getting my life from Christ. I, when I feel a, a, a little pinch of the emotion coming here, like anger and stuff, someone cuts you off of the road or flips you to the bird or whatever, I get angry for a second, but then it, it, there's a little post-it note. It comes up right here. It's in yellow. Get your life from Christ. And it's a little reminder. So then I can thank it. Oh, thank you for reminding me that I'm supposed to be, uh, uh, have my mind on Christ and getting my life from Christ. It won't do you any good to get mad at it. Oh, shoot, I got mad again. Doggone it. Because now you just compiled it. Just say, you know, okay, you got mad. That's, you got triggered, but let's serve as a positive thing. Thank it and then send it away. And, and then I run, run scenarios uh, where, well, what does it look like for you in the worst of situations where you tend to lose it? When you're at and Hildebrand or whatever name I, whatever name I gave, when you're at her house and they're barraging you with these psychology questions, what does it look like when you really do keep your cool? You know, have that up there. Be rehearsing that. Go through that. Enter into that so that when the situation is upon you, you're a little bit prepared for it. It's a discipleship that transforms us into his image of Jesus Christ. Make loving God the goal of everything. Be fueled by the love of God. Manifest the love of God. And tame that bad elephant of yours. Would you stand? Would you elephants and riders please stand? I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward, and if you're here this morning and have any need that could use prayer, please come up here and pray with these folks. They'd love to minister to you, and if you are here and have not yet surrendered your life to Christ, I would encourage you to check that out. Um, I just, just something pulling your heart. Give into that and, and, and see what it is to become a follower of Jesus. As we leave here, we're going out into a corrupt world. We're doing it in the corrupt nature, but can we do it as a people who are just submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ and committed to steering that elephant, not letting the elephant drive us, but in the Lord under, under the authority of Jesus to take that elephant captive for the glory of God. If you're in agreement with that, say amen and go out and love on your neighbors. God bless you guys.